0: Amen. Good morning. Does it seem a little bit quiet this morning? Oh <laughs> uh, well, it, it uh, yeah. The kids have been downstairs uh, from the beginning, from Sunday school, and then they go straight into kids worship from there. So I don't know. I kind of miss the the you know the buzz. The noise, the nobody else is... Uh... Are you guys awake? Huh? It's Christmas break, Luke. Oh. You, a break. you need a break. Okay. Well, happy new year. Um, it is uh, great to be back with you. I had a wonderful time uh, that I ruined by driving 18 hours straight through uh, to get home. So, um, no, it was good to to go get away. But um, I've been excited about this series for a while. I've been thinking about this for quite some time. Um, the idea of preaching through uh, lesser-known stories, lesser-known characters, lesser-known um, situations in Scripture that that we don't always kind of dive into, and maybe we reference here and there, and. And maybe some people are aware of these stories, and some people have no clue. If if it were to pop up on anybody ever play um, Bible trivia, like Trivial Pursuit, but the Bible version, is that like something that happened in the eighties? And that just like one person, any like really, who who has played Bible trivia? Okay, that's a that's a better number than I was expecting. So. You have all these different, you know, names that we talk about, and then you're like, who is that? I don't know where, where that story is in the Bible or what it's really referring to. We, we know the big things, right? We know, like, Noah and the flood, and we know Daniel and the lion's den, and David and Goliath, and, you know, all the big stories, Jesus walking on water and Paul's conversion and all that. But then there, there's these stories that happen all through Scripture that are really, really important, that the rest of Scripture references. So what we know is that the Bible actually has um, this, this honed in, very specific understanding of the content within it that gets woven through, all through Scripture, and we see these references come out, and we don't really know what they're necessarily talking about. And so we're, what we're going to do is we're going to dig into some of these little obscure, uh, lesser known things. And and, uh, and what I want to do is I want to encourage you, um, maybe challenge you, to uh, email me, okay? And let me know uh, of a story or a person or a situation in Scripture um, that you're interested in, that you... Would love to hear about, that you maybe, you know, you think it's like you're, you're the only one in church that, that knows this story um, from Scripture, and we never talk about it, and we'd love to hear more about that, okay? And I'm not promising that I'm going to get to everybody's question or everybody's, you know, suggestion, but I would love to hear from people what you would like to hear about from Scripture that maybe we don't always talk about. Um, So I'm going to encourage you to do that. My email, you can find it on our website, Um, but do that. Just send me an email and say, hey, I'd like to hear about this. And uh, I'll, if I can, I'll try to work it into this series, okay? But today we're talking about uh, the situation of Nadab and Abihu. How many of you are really familiar with Nadab and Abihu? Three people, raise their hands. Okay, so Nadab and Abihu um, is a story about how God requires to be referred to or to be uh, regarded as holy. And um, so what they do is they offer uh, a strange fire on the altar, and they get burned up immediately, okay? And so what's interesting is um, you probably have heard this before, um, but our God is a consuming fire. You ever heard that? That's where that comes from. Uh, And so Hebrews 12, 28 says, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. And then turn over to Leviticus chapter 10. Let's stand as we read God's Word this morning. Leviticus 10, starting in verse 1, says... Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized, and the word there is strange, literally in Hebrew would be strange, fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord has said, among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. Before all the people, I will be glorified, and Aaron held his peace. And Father, um, we come before you, I think and I hope, like Aaron, um, expectantly, Um, we're we're ready to receive your word, ready to receive your um, direction, your will. Uh, Lord, help us to to have a spirit like that, that uh, regards you as holy and has a, a certain amount of, of reverence, Lord, that that causes us to pause and to wait for you to speak, for you to say what you have to say, for you to give your direction. Um, Lord, we're, we're ready to lift up our hearts in worship. We're ready to honor you and glorify you, Father, but we need to, to hear from you. So, Lord, I pray that your word... Uh, would go forth. Lord, we know that your word says that it it never goes out without returning to you doing exactly what you have designed and desired and required. It never returns void. And so, Lord, we pray that today your word would go out and do its powerful work, that your Holy Spirit would take the truth of your word, um, begin to plant it deep into the the soil of, of our hearts and our minds. Uh, bear the fruit that you want to bear. Water it. Um, do all that work, Lord. It's it's about who you are and what you want. And Father, we're ready to hear from you and, and receive from you what you desire. So Lord, we, we lift that up to you. We thank you uh, that you're ready, that you're willing, that you're able. Um, Lord, I pray that we are also ready And willing and able to receive what you have for us today, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So, we have to go back and and kind of cover a little bit of the background. Um, What's going on in this passage? You have to go back to Exodus and uh, realize that uh, Moses has just been used by God to deliver the Israelites out of Egypt. They've crossed the Red Sea The Egyptian army has been completely destroyed. They've gone to Mount Sinai. um, And while they're at Mount Sinai, Moses goes to the mountain. He's on the mountain for 40 days, 40 nights without eating. He's without drinking. He's just uh, receiving the word of God. God's empowering him to live. But he's also giving him the Ten Commandments. The, the Israelites have all heard from God and already encountered God and engaged in God with a covenant. So God has said, I will be your God if you will do this. And they said, yes, we will do this. And so they've, they've already uh, put themselves in a covenant relationship with God even before Moses went and got the Ten Commandments. So he goes up, gets the Ten Commandments, comes down. And what's going on at, uh, when he comes down is that they're worshiping a golden calf and so Moses throws the Ten Commandments down, and they smash into a million pieces. And then he takes the golden calf, and he smashes that to a million pieces, puts it in the drinking water, and they, he makes the people drink the, the idol. And then he... So, I mean, like, really, he's not too happy with what's going on, right? He goes back up the mountain, and Aaron was involved in this whole thing, and he's kind of clueless. He's like... I just threw their gold into the fire, and this is what came out. And the people were wanting, they, they, they'd seen all the things that God had done, but they wanted some visible representation of God. They wanted something tangible. And God said, I made you, okay, you and I as human beings are made in God's image. He said, you are the physical representation of God's image in the world. You don't need anything else. So don't make images of God to represent God. Don't build idols. Don't build statues. Don't do that. So Moses goes back up the mountain, and uh, he gets the Ten Commandments again, and he gets all the rest of the law. And so they're there at Mount Sinai. He comes down, and he begins to teach the law to the people, okay? So they're receiving all the things that God has said, and they stay there for like a year at Mount Sinai, okay? Okay. Now, at this point, they don't know that they're going to be wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. They don't know that yet because that happens later where they go to uh, Israel. The spies go in. Twelve of them go in. They go search out the land. They try to see what's going on. And they come back and ten of them say, uh, the land's beautiful and great and fruitful and all this stuff. But it's also all the people are huge and the, the cities are fortified and we cannot... Uh, possibly you know, conquer this land. Caleb and Joshua, two of the 12 spies, they're like, yeah, all that stuff is true, except with God with us, we can conquer the land easy. I mean, he said it's a piece of cake because it's not going to be us doing it. It's going to be God doing it through us. So the people don't believe Joshua and Caleb. They believe the 10 spies. And so that whole generation is going to die in the desert, and their kids, 20 years old or younger, are going to grow up in the desert, wandering around, and then they're going to go in, and they're going to conquer the land. But they don't know that yet. Okay, at this point, they're still at Mount Sinai. They're still receiving the law, and they're, they're trying to piece this whole thing together about what does it mean to be a people? What does it mean to worship correctly? How does What does God require? And so God is beginning to tell them about how this is going to work. If they're going to worship correctly, then they're going to have to have priests. And he says, the Levites are going to be your priestly tribe. So there's 12 tribes. Levi's going to be the priestly tribe and uh, only the sons of Aaron or the, the direct lineage of Aaron are going to be priests. And the rest of the tribe... They're going to be servants in the temple. They're going to carry the, because what the the tabernacle is, we call it the temple, but the tabernacle for like five, six hundred years, is a tent, and they have to like fold this thing up and and put all the different articles together. And different groups are going to be responsible for carrying different things and and washing things and and um, taking care of like the articles and how it's stored and how it's transported. Um, And so the Levites do that, but the sons of Aaron are the priests who do the sacrifices, they offer the incense, and they are responsible for all the priestly things. So the book of Leviticus is about how the priests are to operate, okay, what they're supposed to do and how they're supposed to uh, take care of the temple and and be pure and, and help the people to be pure and come into contact with God and all that stuff, okay? So what's going on at this point is he's... Finally, God has told them how the priests are going to be sanctified, and they're going to be consecrated, and they're going to be set apart. And so in chapter 9 of Leviticus, God has set apart Aaron and his sons, and he's gone through this whole process of um, washing and anointing with oil, And, and they actually did another thing where they anointed with blood. Sounds great. They put a little blood on their earlobe and on their thumb and on their big toe to signify the whole person it is consecrated, set apart for God. They gave them all these like articles of clothing, so a special robe, an ephod, which is like this breastplate that hangs over Aaron's uh, chest, so it, and it represents all the tribes of Israel, and then he has these shoulder pads and has his hat, and it has you know, all kinds of stuff that he's got to wear, so he looks really cool. Um, and then Aaron's sons also have like special robes and special articles of clothing they have to wear. Aaron gets a special, you know, um, article because he's the high priest and the, the other ones get, you know, different things. But, so they, they get all this stuff, they, they put it all on and uh, they are told they have to stay in the tent of meeting for a week and they do all these sacrifices, and they're secluded from everyone. And then a week goes by, and finally, you know, God's going to kind of unveil the priests to the congregation, to the whole community, to the whole, you know, tribe or the, uh, the whole nation of Israel. And what happens in chapter 9 at the end of that is Moses and Aaron, they offer this sacrifice on behalf of the people and, and the priests to kind of signify, here's a new thing. We have people that are designated to mediate between God and man, between God and, and the whole congregation. They're going to be the ones who, who officiate the law, who officiate the sacrifices, who, who declare purity, who, who help you to know how to live correctly in the presence of God. Okay, And at the end of that, verse 24 in chapter 9, says, Fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering. So God himself sends a fireball from the altar to burn up the sacrifice that they're presenting. Okay, A a supernatural flame of God comes out and consumes their sacrifice. And all the people, it says, uh, that burned up the offering and the pieces of fat on the altar, and all the people saw it. So everybody's there, they all see it, And they shout and they fell on their faces. So, I mean, the the idea is that they're exclaiming joy and wonder and awe and worship to God because of just what he's done right now. And they fall down on their faces, meaning worship and humility, right? That's, That's the whole idea. The very next thing that happens, chapter 10, Nadab and Abihu, who are Aaron's sons, Okay they are particularly the the only people okay Aaron and his sons and his grandsons who can come to the Lord and present offerings not no one else not no other levites can do this only Aaron's children Aaron's sons can do this so they take it on themselves they each took their censer they put fire in it laid incense on it and, authored, and offered unauthorized or strange fire Before the Lord, which is a representation of prayer, and because it's unauthorized or strange, it is irreverent. It's 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 illegal. Everything about it is wrong, and what you see is that Nadab and Abihu um, likely. Here's what I think happens if you because if you skip down to verse nine, here's what God tells Aaron after. After God um, killed Nadab and Abihu through a a fireball, okay, from the altar, Aaron is quiet. He doesn't say anything. He's just kind of in shock, and I think he's frightened because, I mean, how serious of a thing is it to go into into the presence of the Lord? And if I do something incorrect, then (laughs) I could be killed. I mean... Up until the, the destruction of the temple in AD 70, what they would do is the high priest would go into uh, the Holy of Holies once a year on the Day of Atonement and he would wear bells and he would have a rope tied around his waist so that if he went in there and he did something incorrect and he died, they could drag his body out without having to go in there and and subject themselves to the same kind of judgment. So for thousands of years, they were still uh, concerned with the idea of approaching God in an irreverent manner that might um, maybe kill them, which is interesting because I don't see that kind of reverence too much anymore. (laughs) Do you? But here's what uh, it says in verse 9. It says, God is talking to Aaron, and he says, drink no wine or strong drink, you and your sons with you, when you go into the tent of meeting, lest you die. So what does that imply? What do you think it implies? Nadab and Abihu got liquored up. (laughs) After the whole party, you know, and they saw God do this wonderful, amazing thing and burn up the sacrifice, and they're sitting back, I guess throwing back a few bottles of wine or whatever they got. And uh, they're like, and it's weird because if it was one guy, you'd say, what was going on in his head? But there's two of them, which means they're, they are in agreement in that they have a conversation about this. They, they have to. They have to talk about this ahead of time before they go into the, the, the basically the Holy of Holies with unauthorized fire and, and present something to the Lord. And so they're drunk and they're talking about, hey, wouldn't it be cool? Wouldn't it be a? Wouldn't it be hilarious? I don't know if they said that, but if we went into, you know, and offered this, and the, and here's I think part of what that conversation had to do with. I, I don't know for sure, but I, I'm trying to get myself into the mindset of what these guys were thinking about. And and here's what's going on. If you look at the context, you have. Um, Aaron and Moses, who had just in verse in chapter 9, had this amazing experience where God did this powerful thing and all the people saw it. And I think Nadab and Abihu thought they're they're getting glory. Moses and Aaron are 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 being highly respected and they're being propped up and they're they're being, I don't know, they're famous and, they, and they're popular. Their, and I don't know if that was in their heads that, man, they, they somehow wanted glory for themselves. From what they saw just happened, I don't know if that was part of their conversation. And here's the other thing is that um, Moses, sometimes we go back into scripture and we're like, well, this is Bible days. You ever hear people say that? Back in the Bible days, you know, back in biblical times, people lived a long time, right? You ever heard that? Now, that was true way, way, way back in the very beginning when Adam and Eve and and a few generations, Um, but people began to um, have their lifespans limited uh, fairly soon in, in human history, okay? And so at this time, people are not living to be 900 years old, okay? Moses wrote Psalm 90. If you go and read Psalm 90, what you'll see is that Moses wrote... Uh, teach us to uh, gain a heart of wisdom by numbering our days. And he said that the number of days that, that we have is 70 years or 80 if we have the strength. So in, in Moses' generation, in his time, people were living generally about 70 years or if they're in pretty good health, maybe 80 years. Okay, that was the situation in Moses' day. Moses and Aaron, how old are they at this time? You remember? How old was Moses when he left Egypt to flee for his life? 40. He's, he was gone for how long? 40 years. He comes back, he's 80. Okay. So at this time, Moses is about 80. Aaron is his older brother by two or three years. So Aaron and Moses are in Nadab and Abihu's mind, I think, at the end of their life. And they're the, the leaders and Nadab and Abihu are going to replace them, probably in their heads, pretty soon. And so in, in, I think part of the conversation is, here's what Moses and Aaron are doing, and here's how they want things done, and here's how they're saying we should worship God. And guess what? We're going to take over soon, and we want to do it this way. We're not going to do it their way. We're going to do it our way. We're not going to wait and see what God tells us to do. We're going to tell God what we want to do. It was, in one word, it was presumption. It was presuming that they could tell God, they they could dictate to God how they were going to have a relationship with God. And and here's what we understand um, from then to now is that Uh, We don't come to God on our own terms. Do, Do we know that? I don't think people know that. I think people... I think in general, across the board, in this country at least, people think that they come to God on their own terms, however they want, whenever they want, when they feel like it or in whatever manner they think is right, and that it doesn't really matter how you have a relationship with God... You come to God however you want to, and you believe whatever you want to, and you disregard whatever you want to, and you live the way that you want to, and God's just going to be really okay with anything, that as long as you kind of believe in him, he's going to be cool with that. I think that's how people generally are reacting to God. It's like, well, as long as I believe that he is there, then uh, it's all going to be good. And he has said very clearly from day one that it is my will be done, not your will. You're going to come to God according to his design, his plan, his glory, his worship, his honor. And here's what I know. Even right now, even as I say that, there are people that are going to have a problem with that. Who who is God that he gets to decide how I'm supposed to come to him? Now, hopefully <laughs> we can put aside the idea that it's just somebody's opinion. We don't want to deal with people's opinions. We want to deal with what the word of God says, right? It's not about what Pastor Luke thinks, okay? That, what I think about anything really doesn't matter. Would you agree? You're like, amen to that. I don't care what you say. Um, But when the word of God says that this is the truth and this is who God is and this is how he has determined how we ought to come to him and this is what right worship is and we don't get to decide, we don't get to pick this thing apart and tear it apart and pull out pieces that we don't like and shove in pieces we like and rearrange it however we think that's not how it works he has said this is right and this is how how it is going to be and if we don't get on that page then we're off the page there's just no other page to be on it it, it doesn't matter what you want or what your will is or what you your opinion is i am trying to put my opinion aside and get to the point of what does god say this this is what the church ought to be i believe is always what does god want what is his will what is his opinion and as soon as i can get to an understanding of that then i change what i want in my opinion to align with his and i put aside whatever my petty thoughts and opinions and ideas are because i'm human and i'm stupid I mean, I'm maybe average in intelligence, but I'm still just a stupid human being. The only thing that we got going for us is that God has revealed what his word and what his will is, and he's given us the power of his Holy Spirit to be able to understand it. As soon as we get there, then we're we're okay. But if we don't get there, then we're we're in trouble. And so what happens here is Nadab and Abihu, I think are presuming that they are going to come to God, and they're coming to God in an irreverent manner, okay? So there are two major sins that exist in the world, and and obviously there are like millions, but two major ones. One is unbelief. If you do not have belief, then you have absolutely no chance to have a right relationship with God because you have to believe in Him, before you can receive anything from him. Amen? Amen. Hebrews says that um, there are people, many people who hear the gospel and it did no good for them because they did not combine it, the hearing of the gospel, with faith. There there is something that that every person has to do when they hear a message of the gospel, which is they have to choose to believe in God. They They have to at some point... Combine what they're hearing, not not just with your opinion, but with a belief that God is who He says He is, that He wants to bless you. The two things that He says: to believe that He exists, and to know and understand that His desire for you is good. Okay, so that's the the first thing that people fail in is is they just have unbelief. They just don't won't believe in God. They won't trust Him. They won't depend on Him. They won't uh, apply that function that they need. They need to believe God. Secondly, is that there are people that believe mentally and they do not have reverence for God. That's a huge problem in the church in general. I don't know that it's a huge problem in this church in particular, although every church has some of this going on, which is that people uh, Believe that God exists. They actually would um, claim that they are believers in Christ. They've given their life to Christ, uh, but they do not apply a sense of God's worth, holiness, glory, righteousness in, in a sense of of honor. I, I <sighs> there are so many examples of this. It's it's uh, it's disturbing. What that is is blasphemy. When you say, I believe in God, but I do not regard him as holy, then you're, you're blaspheming. And uh, we see this in some churches. I, I, you can go online and see this stuff happening. Um, I did a class here this last um, quarter um, talking about different cultural issues, um, but one of them was uh, the, the church in our day is becoming... What we say, apostate, and what that means is a complete reversal from from actual biblical doctrine and believing and teaching things that are clearly false. Um, you can go online and see this, uh, the Sparkle Creed. Have it, I know some of you've heard of this. Google it. It's it's almost. If it weren't blasphemy, it'd almost be funny, okay? I mean, it's just ridiculous. But there are these people in a church um, similar to any church you'd find across the the landscape uh, where you have somebody in pastoral robes and vestments and whatever else, and they're um, in unison saying... The Sparkle Creed, which is basically a pro-gay, um, transgender, got, basically makes Jesus a homosexual. Okay, This is the Sparkle Creed. And it's like you're, you're in a worship setting. You're saying that, you, that you're there to honor God, and then you're declaring as a group blasphemy. And everybody's in agreement and cheering it on, like this is not only acceptable but wonderful. That, that's not bad enough. Then there's a church over in Chicago where the pastor dressed up in uh, drag in order to, on a Sunday morning, to do a kids' message. And we're in a church and we're gonna say we're worshiping God, and we're, then we're going to dishonor everything that is right and and holy and what God has said, and we're going to have a children's message on a Sunday morning in a worship context where the male pastor is dressed up like a female and giving a kid's message. I mean, does that seem like the the Nadab and Abihu kind of fire should be? (laughs) It's just like, how do you how do you do that? I mean, how do you how do you not have a, a enough reverence for God to think would God be okay with this? I mean, even just in coming to a, a worship service where you know I'm preaching on a Sunday morning, um, you'll never find me out wandering around in the hallway during worship. Yeah, you know, I'm not going to to uh, wait in the back somewhere in a green room for my my chance to come out on the stage. Like, I'm going to be in front worshiping with the congregation because I want my heart to be ready to speak the, the word of God. I mean, just just the idea, I don't know, I'm getting too worked up. Okay, so this is what we see happening in history we see it all through history that there were these moments where god is is seeming to act maybe a little bit contrary to what we would expect that god is going to to destroy these two priests who have come to him in an irreverent manner because he says right here he says i will be regarded as holy by those who approach me i will be regarded as holy By those who who dare to come into my presence, I will be regarded as holy. I'll be lifted up. And then when I am, then what's going to happen is the whole congregation will glorify me. He says, among those who are near me, I will be sanctified, holy. And before all the people, I will be glorified. When God's people revere him as holy, then the world will understand that God can be glorified so what you see is that this the priesthood is being established and god is going to make sure at the very beginning that they know that it's his way he has prescribed the way to come into his presence that we don't get to decide how that works he decides and so when nadab and abihu say we're going to come to him how we want to he says no that's not going to work there are other occasions where this happens there's another one in Second uh, uh, Samuel where David, King David, he wants to bring the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem. You remember this? And it's been in Shiloh, and uh, he's, he wants to establish Jerusalem as the capital and as the worship capital, and where they do the sacrifices. So they basically load up the the altar or the uh, the Ark of the Covenant, okay, which is supposed to be symbolic of the throne of God. Okay, the presence of God. They put it on the back of a pickup truck, and they begin to haul it down to Jerusalem. (laughs) That's kind of the idea. They put it on a cart and have a couple oxen uh, carry this thing or or drag this thing down to Jerusalem. And so um, as they're going along, like you just throw your couch in the back of your truck, you know, they hit a pothole, and the thing begins to kind of wobble a little bit. Uh, Uzzah puts his hand out to steady the ark, and he gets zapped. And he's killed immediately. And so they're carrying the ark to Jerusalem, but they they realize, like, hey, we're not doing something right here. They didn't look at the directions. So they're right in front of Obed-Edom's house, and they're like, hey, Obed-Edom, since you're closest here, why don't you take the ark into your house? Now, what if you were Obed-Edom? What would you think? don't bring that thing in here. It's going to kill me. Like, that's, I can't imagine he's okay with this, but... I don't think he has a choice. So because if you remember back in in some of the other stories, what had happened was the Ark of the Covenant was stolen by the Philistines. God was not happy with what Israel was doing. And so they brought the Ark into battle, and the Philistines conquered them, and they took the Ark. And in the town that they had the Ark, uh, because they were not obviously worshiping God, uh, they thought it was just some article, some piece of furniture. They had tumors, and the word is... Probably, hemorrhoids, and then also, I mean, this is in the Bible, okay, so in rats infesting their town, like this is the kind of stuff that's happening when the ark is present, and you don't honor God as holy, and they're like uh let's get rid of this thing, <laughs> and so obed um he's like, uh, okay, I guess put it over there." <laughs> And uh, what happens, though, is that his house is blessed and he you know, becomes very prosperous and all this stuff. And so they're like, okay, uh, God's not going to kill us all immediately. So let's just figure out what we're supposed to do with this thing and uh, how we're supposed to transport it. And there are rings, gold rings, on the, the bottom, around the bottom base of the, the ark. And there are golden poles that go through those rings. And the priests are supposed to carry the ark on their shoulders. And you've probably seen depictions of this. Um, And that's how they're prescribed in Scripture to carry the ark. They can't transport it by throwing it in the back of their truck. And so they're like, okay, this is how we do it. Make sacrifices, and they're worshiping, and they're transporting it correctly, finally, and they get the ark into Jerusalem. Now, that was another occasion where God says, you're not getting it. I'm going to be revered as holy by those who would approach me. And the ark was a symbol of the presence of God. You say, well, that's Old Testament, right? God wouldn't do that. Now we're in the time of grace and mercy and forgiveness, and Jesus has died on the cross, and so we don't have to worry about that anymore, right? How many of you uh, know the names Ananias and Sapphira from Acts chapter 5? So the church has begun. Jesus died on the cross. He rose again. He, he ascended into heaven. And the church is just growing like crazy. Thousands of people are coming to the Lord, and people are being filled with the Holy Spirit, and they're worshiping, and they're gathering together. They're listening to the apostles' teaching, and they're, they're celebrating communion together, and they're praying, and they're doing all this stuff. And so in Acts chapter 4... Uh, something happens where this guy named Joseph, he has a piece of land, he sells it, and he gives the proceeds to the apostles, he, he lays it at the apostles' feet is what it says, for them to take that money and, and help widows and orphans and do whatever. And uh, he is so, you know, just revered by you know, this act, and everybody's so encouraged by this, they actually change his name to Barnabas. You heard of Barnabas? So Barnabas, the name means son of encouragement. His actual name is Joseph. And so Ananias and Sapphira, chapter 5 of Acts, were like, man, look at how, you know, awesome it was that he did that, and everybody thinks he's great. Why don't we do that too? Except, why don't we keep a little bit back and, for our 401k, and then we'll just say that it's the whole amount. Who's going to know? Right? What's the harm? So they bring, they sell this little piece of land they have, whatever it is. They bring the amount or some of the amount. They keep some, give some. They say, yep, this is the whole amount. And so Ananias comes to Peter and and, uh, and he, he lays it out there and he says, how did you think that you would lie to the Holy Spirit? Like, you're not just lying to me. You're lying to God. And he drops dead on the spot. And they carry him out. I don't know. I, I guess they must have really known he was dead because they just bury him immediately. <laughs> I don't know if he, like, turned into, you, you know the movies where somebody, like, just immediately becomes, like, a like a skeleton? It's just like, uh, I don't know. It's like they knew he was dead, and they just went and buried him. And then his wife comes in, like, a few hours later, Sapphira, and she comes to Peter, and Peter's like, so, this the whole mount? Remember the story? And she's like, yep, that's the whole amount. And he's like, "What? how could you conspire the two of you together to to lie to God? The same men that buried your husband, their feet are at the door. They're going to come bury you. And she drops dead in the spot. New Testament. Why is that? You, You think about that? It's like, so two things are happening. One is That story in the New Testament is clearly connected to Nadab and Abihu in Leviticus chapter 10. Did you ever know that? You ever heard that before? They're obviously connected Two people conspiring to do something that ends up in their immediate death. And why they're connected in Scripture is because In the Old Testament, in Leviticus 10, God is saying the priesthood, they are the ones who come into my presence. I will be regarded as holy by them. And in the New Testament, who are the priests? What does the Bible say about the priesthood in the New Testament? It's not the clergy. It's not the pastors standing in front of the people. It's not the people wearing the robes and the hats and the collars and all that garbage. I say that intentionally because the Bible says that the priesthood is of all believers. And there's been a mistake. Maybe it's unintentional, but I don't think so. But there's a problem that many church traditions have made a, a tradition of a priesthood that is the clergy, the ordained people who wear all the vestments, have the robes and the sashes and the hats and all that other stuff and all the symbols and the altars and the candles. And the... and what that is is a portrayal of the Old Testament priesthood. And what it does is it tells the people that you don't have the opportunity to come to God on your own. You must come through a priest. But you're a priest, and there are different callings, and there are different giftings, but everyone, every believer who has the Holy Spirit who has received Christ is a priest who can come into the immediate presence of God without a mediator because you have Jesus Christ as your mediator, and you have a calling, and you have a gifting of the Holy Spirit that you are responsible to understand and to use. And you don't need me to pray for you, although I'm happy to pray for you, and it's wonderful for people to intercede in prayer for each other, and that's great, but you don't need somebody who has the title reverend. I've heard this before. I think it's probably true. There'll be more people with the title reverend in hell than in heaven. (laughs) Maybe I shouldn't say that. I'm quoting somebody else. Hopefully that won't end up online. Okay. <laughs> so, but the thing is that it, I think it could be controversial to say we shouldn't have this hierarchy. You shouldn't. Ha- you should not be called priests any more than any. All of us should be called priests. That shouldn't be an exclusionary thing, depending on whether or not somebody ordains you or not. I I even have a hard time with the idea of the ordination because it it almost seems like you're, you're saying that you're excluded or you're special different than all the other Christian people who have an opportunity to come to the Lord just like we all do. Because what it means is, what it seems to say is that you don't really have a calling, but I do. That's not true. So you have a gifting, and you do have a calling, and we all do, and we have to use it. And this is what, in the New Testament, what Ananias and Sapphira were about was the idea that who is of the priesthood. Okay, in the in Leviticus ten, it was Nadab and Abihu. That was very specific. In the New Testament, it is a clear teaching that every believer is of the priesthood and are approaching God on their own, in their in their own faith in their own relationship without a human being as mediator, and that you have a responsibility to revere God as holy in your life. You do. Not just me. Not just the pastors. Not just the people who are on staff. Not just the people who, whatever, have titles. It's every believer must regard God as holy. And when we do that, Okay. When we as the priesthood of all believers do that, what it says is, Those who approach me will regard me as holy so that all the people, by all the people, I'll be glorified. Here's what I think is happening in our country right now, is that the church does not revere God as holy, by and large. And the world is not glorifying God as God, as a result. As as the church dumbs this down and doesn't really regard God as holy and begins to make up its own rules and come to God in their own terms and say what we think is moral and, and right and wrong, however we want, and it's in complete contradiction to what God says, then the world says, You live just like we do, you don't have any fear of God, why should we? And the whole belief system is crumbling around us, All, I mean, from coast to coast, you see a decline of faith, and it starts in the house of God. Why does, why does the Bible say judgment begins in the house of God? What does Hebrews say again? It says, therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. The kingdom is not going to be shaken God's going to establish his kingdom. There's no doubt about that. And we're thankful to be part of that kingdom. It says, let us offer to God what? Acceptable worship with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. Amen? It's our job. Keep him lifted up as holy in our lives day to day. And Father, we thank you, we praise you, we want to worship and adore and honor you the way that you deserve. You are worthy, Lord. We don't know why there isn't more judgment, Lord. We look around and we see all kinds of situations that that could readily, easily, immediately deserve your judgment, your your condemnation. But you, you're gracious, Lord. You're patient. You, you want people to come to repentance. And Lord, we pray that we uh, would begin with our, our own lives, our own selves, lifting up our own sin, our own issues, our own lack of faith, our own doubts, our own problems, whatever they may be, that we would bring those to you first. Um, next, Lord, help us to bring, intercede or, or lift up uh, those around us however we can, whatever the situation may be, that we would present others to you for your healing, your help. Lord, help us to speak the truth in love, to, to really make sure that we speak the truth of your word in compassion, with reverence for you and, and, and fear for others, Lord, that we would be concerned about where people are at, where they may be going, but to not hesitate to speak the truth of your word, not in a condemning way, Lord, but just to make sure that people know how good you are, but how severe and how permanent the consequences are when we don't turn to you in faith, Lord. I pray that we would not fear saying the truth, Lord, where it needs to be said. But we pray for a revival across this land, Lord. We pray for your church, your churches, our church, every church across the country to revere you as holy, that the the world may glorify you, even if they don't understand, at least that they would know that the church honors you as holy, so they may see the difference. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to just encourage you this morning, um, wherever you've been uh, here's my big encouragement or challenge to you. If you have had faith without reverence and you know that this morning that you have believed but you have not obeyed, would you come to the altar and lay that down? Doesn't mean that you're not saved maybe you maybe you are saved, but you know that you're in that gap where God's not really okay with where you're at. God is a loving and gracious and patient and forgiving God, but he is not permissive. He does not wink at your sin and say that it's okay. He forgives it when you repent, but he's not okay with you just living in it. If that's where you've been and you want to lay that down, would you do that this morning? Would you say, God, I, I don't want to be irreverent anymore. I want to show the world what it means to regard you as holy. Let's stand and sing.